You're listening to the Rocky Mountain Review for Thursday, August 26, 2021. I'm Coda Babcock. And I'm Ivy Winfrey. And you're tuned in to KCSU Fort Collins. On today's show, Ellie Shannon explains updates in campus news at the COVID-19 Town Hall. And I'll be discussing how increased use of drones is causing extra stress for Colorado wildlife. After that, Dixon Lawson updates us on CSU Athletics. And then you'll be hearing information on reporting abuse or sexual assault to police officers. Then, CODA goes over a discrimination case at Valor Christian High School in the release of police brutality footage from 2019. Then, we'll be hearing about how victims of abuse or sexual assault can report to the university. After that, I'll be giving new information on COVID-19 and speaking to Austria Cohn from the Collegian about COVID-19 on campus. To conclude the show, Coda will be giving some updates on OnlyFans' recent decision to ban sexual content. And I'll be telling you about the weirdest stories I've found recently. Let's move right into campus and local news. Hey everyone, this is Ellie Shannon and welcome back to our first week of school. Everyone is mostly back on campus and it has been busy out there. Masks are still mandatory on campus, but there is full capacity in classrooms and other university spaces. A recent town hall meeting did take place on August 18th to discuss CSU's fall semester and what the COVID guidelines are going to look like throughout the term. According to Austria Khan of the Collegian, President Joyce McConnell stated, We are now facing the Delta variant, but we never let our guard down. All of our systems that we had in place last year are either in place or improved. Non-compliance with the current guidelines, which include wearing a mask on campus as well as being vaccinated, will be addressed through the university's guidelines. For more on Khan's story, stay tuned for a quick Q&A towards the second half of today's episode. Campus might be looking a little different this year as well, especially the Oval. The Oval Stormwater Project was underway this summer as construction management personnel replaced and expanded stormwater piping underneath. The project's goal was to expand the pipes to reduce flooding, especially since the trees in the Oval are extremely valuable to the university. Bikers are also going to benefit from construction, according to Isaiah Dennings of the Collegian, since more bike storage is available as well as the repavement of bike lanes. We're heading into the weekend with a strong start to classes, and next week look forward to more campus news coming your way. I'm Ellie Shannon, and make sure to always tune into KCSU on 90.5 FM. Hello there, I'm Ivy Winfrey, and this is your local news for today on 90.5 KCSU Fort Collins. The city of Fort Collins will be spraying for mosquitoes in northeast Fort Collins. According to a city news release, the city will be spraying due to high levels of West Nile virus-infected Culex mosquitoes that were trapped last week. Then the city will be spraying fog. Uh, the city will be spraying with fogging trucks on both Thursday, August 26th, and Sunday, August 29th, weather weather permitting. It will begin at around eight each night and end around two the following morning. Spraying will take place in areas generally bounded by Douglas Road, I-25, Mulberry Street, Riverside Avenue, College in College Avenue, as well as the area east of I-25 to County Road 5, between Mulberry Street and County Road 48, and the residential areas immediately west of College Avenue between Hickory Street and Highway 1. Please see detailed maps of the spray area at fcgov.com slash westnile. The entire spray area will be treated on both nights. The city's contractor, Vector Disease Control International, will use a permethrin-based product to uh, apply a fine mist. To minimize pesticide exposure, residents should stay indoors and keep doors and windows closed for 30 to 60 minutes after spraying. It's recommended that residents bring their pets indoors as well. Residents can further minimize pesticide exposure by covering organic gardens, ponds, and water features with a sheet or tarp. Fogging trucks are equipped with GPS tracking. To follow the truck's progress, visit fcgov.com slash West Nile. Colorado officials are saying that increased use of drones is causing extra stress to wildlife. According to Miles Bloomhart at the Coloradoan, drones have become increasingly popular among hobbyists in Colorado's outdoors, prompting state wildlife officials to voice concerns about the stress the buzzing aircraft can cause wildlife, especially as fall hunting seasons begin and animals prepare for winter. Colorado Peaks and Wildlife Field Services Assistant Director Heather Duggan says that whether hunting or simply outflying your drone, harassing wildlife with it is illegal. 
Dugan says that in a press release that, quote, the definition of harassment is causing any change in the behavior of the wildlife. So if the animal runs, if it changes direction, if it stops eating, that's harassment. Any change in the animal is considered harassment and is illegal, end quote. Dugan says also that the use of drones is prohibited for hunting before, during, or after outings in Colorado, saying, quote, The bottom line is, if it's related to a hunt in any way, you can't do it. For scouting, locating anything, if they fly before they take an animal, they're illegal. If they use the drone to locate an animal that may have, they may have shot and wounded, they're illegal, end quote. Penalties for violating drone laws can range from $70 up to $125,000 if it involves using drones for hunting purposes, with drones or related equipment subject to seizure. Wildlife experts say that drones can stress wildlife, especially those preyed upon by predators or birds of prey from the air. These predators also see drones as competition for food. Drones can cause stress to wildlife parents, which are already on high alert to protect their young. Drones should be kept a safe distance from the wildlife and should immediately leave an area where wildlife is showing behavior changes due to stress from the aircraft. Drones are restricted from taking off or landing in any of Colorado parks and wildlife's more than 350 state wildlife areas. Drone use in state parks is limited to those parks in a designated area for model aircraft use. U.S. Forest Service guidelines prohibit drones from taking off or landing from designated wilderness areas, but drones are generally legal in other parts of national forests. Drones are prohibited in national parks. The city of Fort Collins officials have identified uh, that miscalculations in engineering were what caused the structural issues that closed the Union on Plum apartment complex. According to Pat Ferrier at the Coloradoan, Graystar, the property management company for the Union on Plum apartment complex, told the city that miscalculations made in the original sheer wall design led to the problems that closed the building at 1323 West Plum Street, displacing about 220 Colorado State University residents for the 2021-2022 academic year, according to Fort Collins interim chief building official Marcus Coldrian. The city did not do its own analysis, but inspected the building after it was closed and found no visible signs of structural damage, he said. Shear walls are vertical elements designed to strengthen structures to resist lateral forces like wind. Lateral forces caused by wind, earthquakes, and uneven settlement loads, in addition to the weight of a structure and its occupants, create powerful twisting forces, according to Civil Simplified, a civil engineer website. Miscalculations in... Sheer wall development could lead to wall or floor cracks, unclosable doors, and in extreme cases, building collapse. Dino DeTullo, a member of the building's ownership company, told the Coloradoan in July repairs were needed on the walls, including some of the interior portions of the building, but that the building was safe. As of last week, building owners had not yet applied for a building permit to make the necessary repairs, Coldrian said. One resident vacating the building in July said he had a crack in his ceiling for months. The building opened in 2018 and leases individual bedrooms, mostly to college students. Leases for incoming residents were canceled, but the management company worked to find space in its other buildings, including Union on Alley, Union on Elizabeth, Pura Vida, and Carriage House. Those who chose to cancel their leases were expected to get full refunds. My name is Ivy Winfrey, and that's all the local news I have for today, here on 90.5 KCSU Fort Collins. We'll be right back. Rams Nation, I hope you've all had an amazing summer, and hopefully you're all as excited as I am for CSU Sports to be back. My name is Dixon Lawson, and this is the RMR Sports Report for the week of August 23rd, 2021. 
To start us off on Thursday, August 26th, we have women's soccer here in Fort Collins as they take on the South Dakota Coyotes at 4 p.m. If you're just arriving back to campus or this is your first time, I highly recommend checking out the women's soccer team here at CSU. You can catch all the action at 4 p.m. Following soccer on Thursday, we also have back-to-back -back volleyball games this weekend. First, on Friday, August 27th at 7 p.m., we have the home opener for the 2021 volleyball team as they take on the South Dakota Coyotes. This will also be the whiteout game, so be sure to pack Moby Arena this Friday at 7. Of course, just like all the home volleyball games, KCSU will be bringing you all the action right here on 90.5 with myself and Eliza Drotar on the call. Be sure to tune in 15 minutes early for the volleyball game pregame show following a late night at Moby, the Rams will be back on the court Saturday, August 28th at 2 p.m. to take on the Northwestern Wildcats. Just like the night before, you can catch all the action live starting at 1.45 p.m. with myself and Caleb Allen on the call. That wraps up the RMR Sports Report for the week of August 23rd. My name is Dixon Lawson, and you've been listening to the RMR on 90.5 KCSU FM, Fort Collins. Welcome to this episode of We Believe You, advocacy, resources, and healing around interpersonal trauma. I'm Casey. And I'm Jessica. And I'm Marie. We wanted to share some real-life experiences with you. Here at CSU, you can report to law enforcement, and if your abuser is a CSU student, you may also report to the university to start a Title IX investigation. The thought of reporting can be overwhelming, especially if you're new to the process, and it can help to know what reporting looks like before you make any decisions. Many students I've worked with told me that talking through the process has been super helpful in reducing their anxiety around reporting. Any survivor, regardless of whether or not they're a student, can report to law enforcement. This is a complicated decision, and your identities have a huge role to play in it. Keep in mind that you don't have to report right away. But if you make the decision to report, there's some things to think about. First, you have to figure out jurisdiction. This just means that the location of a crime determines which police department takes the report. If an assault happens on campus, like in a residence hall, you would report to the CSU Police Department. If it happened off campus, but in the Fort Collins city limits, then Fort Collins Police would take the report. If your assault happened outside Fort Collins, but in Larimer County, then you would report to the Larimer County Sheriff's Office. Of course, some assaults don't happen anywhere near Fort Collins, which will change jurisdiction. To make a report to law enforcement, you can call or drop into a police station and talk to an officer. The advocates at the WGAC may be able to help you connect directly with a detective instead of a patrol officer, which can make their process a little easier in some cases. Before you make a decision, you may want to think about the possible outcomes of reporting to law enforcement, which will depend on your unique situation. Once you report to law enforcement, a patrol officer or detective may decide there's not enough evidence to bring charges against your abuser and nothing further will happen. In other situations, a criminal case may be opened. A detective will perform an investigation and then pass along findings to the district attorney or DA. The district attorney will then decide if the case will move forward to court or not. If the DA decides not to move forward with your case, this does not mean your experience wasn't serious. It doesn't even mean the DA doesn't believe you. The DA is just ethically bound to take cases with enough evidence to convince a jury. However, if you make the decision to report to law enforcement, it's also important to ask yourself about your motivations. For example, if you're choosing to report because you want to see your abuser go to jail, then you might be disappointed because very few perpetrators will ever see jail time. Some survivors have told me they even felt unheard and re-victimized by reporting. But some survivors I work with say that reporting made them feel like they did all they could in this situation, which helped put it behind them and made it easier to recover and regain a sense of control over their lives, independent of the outcome. Sometimes survivors are worried that law enforcement won't believe them, or they might hesitate to report because of bad past experiences with the police. These concerns are totally understandable. Police training on interpersonal violence differs, and some police departments do way better than others. But you may still find reporting to be completely worth it, no matter where your assault happened. To start, we know that society and potential jurors have an image of the ideal victim, which is often a heterosexual, affluent, and beautiful white woman who is broken and a sobbing mess. If a survivor is poor, a person of color, LGBTQ+, a sex worker, 
or any combination of these and other marginalized identities, they may not be believed as much as other people. For example, policing in the United States has racism in its very roots because it began as slave patrols and night watches, both designed to control the behavior of people of color. In modern times, we have seen racism play out on a national level in the Black Lives Matter movement and the response of Blue Lives Matter. We say Black Lives Matter because it's been so often shown that they don't. As a result, Black communities in the United States have learned that it isn't okay to trust law enforcement. If you'd like more information on racialized barriers to service, check out Marie's episode in Season 1 called Barriers to Access for People of Color. Also, police departments are often hyper-masculine environments, and many of them demonstrate homophobia. Survivors in the LGBTQ community may hesitate to report to law enforcement for fear of discrimination or not being believed. They might even be scared of getting hurt by police officers if they report. You can find more trans-specific information in Casey's Season 2 episode called Barriers to Access for Trans Survivors. Other communities believe that these matters need to be handled within the family, religious community, or racial community of the survivor and their perpetrator. This can be even more important if a survivor or perpetrator is a member of a group that doesn't want to give their community a bad name or who believe group members should take care of their own. Also, for a variety of reasons, survivors may be afraid of their family or clergy members finding out about violence through the reporting process. Reporting may also get super complicated if a survivor chooses to stay in an abusive relationship and doesn't want their partner to get in trouble, or if they fear escalated violence as a result of reporting to law enforcement. Again, reporting is a complicated and complex decision for these reasons and so many more. It can help to talk to a confidential resource to seek support in making a decision around reporting that feels right to you. Remember that you don't have to report right away or at all. It's okay to take time to think about reporting and decide what's best for you. This decision is a personal one, and you get to choose. Now that I've talked about some very real and important systemic issues, you as an individual may find it important to name your experiences and report them to law enforcement. So I'm going to go over some of the common questions and concerns that many survivors bring up in advocacy. Several students I work with have asked me if there is a time limit in reporting to the police. In short, Yes, there is. The window of time in which you can report a crime is called a statute of limitations. For example, with sexual assault in the state of Colorado, there is no statute of limitations if a person was under the age of 18 when the assault happened. But if the survivor was over 18, the statute of limitations is 20 years. So you have plenty of time to decide whether or not you'd like to report a sexual assault to law enforcement. Relationship violence is a bit more complicated, which can be really hard for survivors. In the state of Colorado, relationship violence is also known as domestic violence. Legally, it's not considered a crime in itself, but is added as an enhancer to other crimes. So an abuser can be charged with assault, harassment, or another crime with a DV, or domestic violence enhancer, which impacts their sentencing. A DV enhancer can be involved for current or ex-intimate partners. The domestic violence enhancer may seem a bit weird, but it isn't too complicated. For example, if someone slashed their neighbor's tires, they can be charged with vandalism. But if they slash their ex-partner's tires, they can be charged with vandalism with a DV enhancer. Because of this, the statute of limitations for relationship violence depends on the crime. For example, if it's a case of misdemeanor physical assault, the statute of limitations is 18 months. For felony assault, it's three years. For other crimes, like attempted murder, there is no statute of limitations. A downside to this can be that a survivor does not necessarily know what police will say about their experience or what kind of crime it may be. This can be hard to figure out because there are no clear-cut answers. Some survivors also ask me about SANE exams. This stands for Sexual Assault Nurses Exam. This is a medical process completed in a hospital during which trained nurses collect evidence from the body of a survivor in the seven days following a sexual assault. By law, you are not required to report to law enforcement in order to receive a SANE exam, but the evidence will be stored for at least two years and it may help if you choose to report at a later time. Survivors also share many concerns about reporting to law enforcement. You may have a whole list of reasons why you don't want to report, and they are all valid. Maybe you're confused about what happened. 
It's super common to feel this way about your experience. You may even blame yourself for what happened. This is normal, too, for so many reasons. Remember that sexual assault and relationship violence are never your fault. The only person responsible for violence is the abuser. You may also struggle with whether or not you want your abuser to receive punishment for what they did. This is a common feeling and one that can complicate the decision to report. I've heard many survivors say they don't want to ruin their abuser's life or they don't want them to get in trouble. But it may help to remember that your perpetrator made the decision to abuse you and any outcomes of reporting are not your fault. Also, acquaintance assaults on college campuses often happen within friend groups. You may struggle with the idea of your assault becoming public knowledge because it might feel embarrassing or you may worry about being excluded from your friend group, club, or organization. Sometimes friends, parents, or other support systems think that reporting to law enforcement is the best option and will try to convince you to make a report. This can be overwhelming and frustrating, especially if you aren't sure about this decision or have decided against it. Your loved ones mean well and want the best for you. Advocates at the WGAC are available to talk to you and your support people about pressure to report. Another concern you may have is what happens when you've been intimate with your perpetrator in the past or are currently in a relationship with the person who abused you. These are understandable concerns when it comes to reporting to law enforcement. Just because you are intimate with someone in the past does not mean you have to consent to anything in the future. Also, physical and emotional abuse and sexual assault happen often in abusive relationships. It's totally understandable if you're not ready to do anything about it or leave your relationship. This is a complicated decision. However, remember that interpersonal violence is against the law, and a past or current relationship does not mean someone gets to abuse you. You may also be concerned if you didn't have physical injuries and may feel like there's not enough evidence about what happened to you. But many sexual assaults don't result in external physical injuries. As I mentioned earlier, if a sexual assault happened within the past seven days, you can choose to have a SANE exam to check for DNA evidence that might not be visible on the surface. And we know that relationship violence, stalking, and sexual harassment don't always involve physical violence. However, there can still be other forms of evidence about what happened to you. Some survivors I work with are concerned about getting into trouble for what happened. Maybe you were drinking or using drugs at the time of your assault. If you're a minor, maybe you're afraid of being disciplined, either by the law or by your parents. When reporting an assault to police, they will be investigating the assault, not the fact that you were drinking. It's important to remember that assault is a crime, no matter the circumstances. We'll now hear from Britta Clay, a victim advocate for the Fort Collins Police Department. Britta has a ton of experience working with survivors and can offer some insight about her role and thoughts on reporting to law enforcement. Hey, Britta, welcome to the studio. I'm so glad you can join us today. Thank you so much. I'm really excited to be here and um, very much appreciate you asking me to come. For sure. All right. Could you please talk to me a little bit about your salient identities? Um, I consider myself, oh, well, I am a local. Um, so I've been around the university for a long time. So I've seen how it's grown and how it's changed. Um, I am a stepmom. So I am um, know the, the challenges and also the benefits of having a little one in my life. Um, and then the extended family that comes with that. Um, I have been in law enforcement for 10 years, and then before that, I was a victim advocate with a nonprofit who worked with law enforcement, so I very much am law enforcement-minded. So I approach a lot of that, um, the cases that I work and the people I work with, with the law enforcement mind, but then I'm also a trauma specialist. So my heart and my passion and a huge part of my identity and who I am is more of the science-based um you know, reactions that that happen to victims that they have no control over that we then see portrayed um, during their trauma and trying to explain some of that so that they know there's nothing wrong with them. Something happened to them. So I've studied that. That's been my passion for the last probably seven or eight years completely. So my um, my main focus and identity within work is this trauma specialist um, from everything from harassment to homicide, but specifically with sexual assault. So that's a huge piece. Um, of what I, I really bring to to the work that I do with victims every day. 
I operate on the statewide position as far as victim advocates go. I'm on the board of directors for our Colorado organization for victim assistance. So I've been really involved. I'm starting to get more involved with public policy. So that's becoming another um, kind of hat that I wear. And another part of this whole role that I'm in is to really look at some of the, the issues um, that victims are up against and how offenders, um, we really focus on the laws that around them, but how does that affect victims? So that's just another part of um, kind of this victim advocate um, identity that we have. That's great. It sounds like you have a lot of really amazing experience with survivors. I'm going to dig into that a little bit more. Would you tell me a little bit more about your role as a victim advocate and maybe a bit about how systems-based advocates differ from community-based advocates? Absolutely. So um, I'm a law enforcement victim advocate. I always have been. Um, most law enforcement or sheriff's office, um, they have a victim advocate team, especially in Colorado. I feel like we're very progressive as far as... Um, victims issues and working with crime victims. So as far as my role, um, my advocate team, we really have to focus on the Victims Rights Amendment, which is um, a Colorado uh, state statute that was passed in 92 that actually changed our Colorado constitution to allow for certain um, victims of certain crimes to have rights under the state constitution. So part of um, being in law enforcement and then also with the DA's office or in that system world is we have to, by law, provide services to crime victims. And a lot of that is um, notifying them of the critical stages in the investigation or the process. Um, but when you're working with somebody in trauma, it's it's just not very practical to hand them information or a brochure. So that's why we have our advocate team to make sure that victims know what their rights are and that those rights are being met, but also provide that crisis counseling and provide that support, um, help them kind of navigate the system because it's really confusing. It's sometimes confusing for us who kind of live in that world. We respond 24-7 to um, a lot of VRA crimes. And basically what that is, is any crime against a person. I think in today's just society, victims, um, what I'm seeing is victims are very afraid that they're not going to be believed or that they have to walk in the doors and have proof that their victimization happened. And so I think it's really important for people to know that that is just not that's not accurate. You walk in those doors of the police department and we believe that this happened to you. Um, and we want to make sure that you get the best support and services. Um, that is our top priority. To reach an advocate, you can call 970-492-4242. A big thank you to Xavier Hadley for creating the music used in this podcast. For more KCSU content, go to kcsufm.com. Thank you so much for listening and take care of yourself. I'm Coda Babcock, and you're listening to National News for Thursday on the Rocky Mountain Review. Today's first national news story features anti-black violence at the hands of police. This story is about a minute to a minute and a half in total. KCSU News encourages listeners to listen to this piece at their own risk, as the story is graphic. Newly released video of camera footage shows a Louisiana State Police trooper beating a black man with a flashlight 18 times. According to the Associated Press, the video shows the man, Aaron Larry Bowman, shouting, quote, I'm not resisting, end quote repeatedly throughout the encounter. The footage was taken of a 2019 encounter between Bowman and the officer, and the footage was hidden from the public for over two years. The department identified the officer as Jacob Brown. The beating left Bowman with a broken jaw, three broken ribs, a broken wrist, and a gash to his head, which AP says took six staples to close. This occurrence was under three weeks after another black man, Ronald Green, 
died in Louisiana police custody on a rural roadside. Both cases are being included in a, a federal investigation into police brutality and department efforts to cover up these incidents. Bowman's beating wasn't investigated for over 500 days following the attack, despite body camera footage, and is believed to have only began an investigation because Bowman brought a civil lawsuit against the police department. Johnson & Johnson reports new evidence that shows a booster shot for individuals who received the first Janssen COVID-19 shot may be beneficial. Joe Hernandez, Joel Neal, and Rob Stein from National Public Radio report that the data has not yet been released for peer review or published in a scientific journal, but Johnson & Johnson believes that this could be a way to ensure continuous COVID immunity. Johnson & Johnson sent a news release on the study Wednesday showing that after six months, participants had a nine times higher antibody level than the 28 days following the first shot. The results of the study will be sent to the Food and Drug Administration in hopes that it will get authorization for a booster shot to be given within six to eight months after someone receives the first vaccination. Almost 90% of federal rental assistance hasn't been spent by states and cities yet. According to Joey Garrison at USA Today, the payments were approved by U.S. Congress, and despite President Joe Biden's efforts to get funds to renters and landlords during the eviction crisis, $46.5 billion in rental relief were distributed to states, but only $5.2 billion were actually spent so far. One in six renters currently are behind on rent based on a census survey, despite the existence of emergency rental assistance funds. Valor Christian High School in Highlands Ranch, Colorado, reportedly asked an openly gay coach to either go back in the closet or leave his position. According to Karma Hassan and Kay Jones at CNN, boys volleyball coach Inoke Tonga says the school administrators told him that if he posted about his identity online, it would put students at risk. Tonga began coaching at the school last year and was recently asked to begin coaching girls volleyball as well. While Valor Christian School is well known for its strict culture contract, Tonga said the document didn't include anything about the school's stance on LGBTQ staff members. In an interview with CNN, Tonga said, quote, I know I can be a gay man and a child of God, end quote. One parent, Robert Gallup, supported students in holding a walkout in support of Tonga, who is a well-respected coach at the school. If it's an option, Tonga intends to continue working for Valor Christian High School. Hawaii residents, including Governor David Ige, are encouraging t tourists to stop coming to Hawaii amid COVID-19 concerns. According to Kiara Alfonseca from ABC News, the governor said at a press conference, quote, we know that the visitors who choose to come to the island will not have the typical kind of holiday that they expect to get when they visit Hawaii. End quote. ABC News says that the Delta variant spread is especially bad in Hawaii, which has more cases than they've ever had so far in the pandemic. Hawaii's hospitals are at 72% capacity. From June 2019 to June 2020's holiday seasons, Hawaii's tourism went, by, went down by less than 20,000 people. Just over half of Hawaii's residents have received all doses necessary for vaccination, and the state is implementing new restrictions. Some Hawaiians are also expressing concerns about the damage tourism is doing to the islands after coming out of quarantine in 2020, when tourism was at a standstill. That's all for National News Highlights. I'm Koda Babcock, and you're listening to KCSU Fort Collins. This is the Rocky Mountain Review. Welcome to this episode of We Believe You, advocacy, resources, and healing around interpersonal trauma. I'm Casey. And I'm Jessica. And I'm Marie. This is Jessica, and you're listening to episode number 16, What to Know About Reporting. And in this episode, we'll be discussing what to know about reporting to the university. This is an option when your abuser is a student or an employee at your institution. Later in this podcast, we'll hear from one of CSU's Title IX investigators, Audrey Swenson, who has worked with many survivors to investigate reports of interpersonal violence. But first, we'll start with some general insight into what the process looks like. One thing to note is that in this podcast, I will be focusing on CSU's process. So keep in mind that every university has a different process. And if you have questions about your university's specific procedures for Title IX stuff, I'd recommend reaching out to an advocate or a Title IX investigator at your school. But as I mentioned before, if your abuser is a student or an employee at CSU, you have the option of reporting what happened to the university. And once you file a report, the university will investigate your claims and will try and determine if a Title IX violation occurred. So if your abuser is a CSU student, you would report to the Office of Support and Safety Assessment. This is the office at CSU that handles Title IX violations. 
Just like reporting to the police, you're welcome to connect with an advocate before making an official report to support and safety assessment. An advocate can also accompany you to your meeting with the investigator to provide support for you during the process. After reporting, if an investigation is opened, it usually takes about 60 days to complete. To protect you during the investigative process, interim measures are put in place up until the outcome of the final hearing. Interim measures may include, but are not limited to, no contact orders, temporary suspension, or campus expulsion. After the investigation takes place, a report of the investigative findings will be sent to a separate office on campus called the Student Resolution Center. A hearing officer will then schedule a one-on-one -on -one hearing with your abuser, which CSU's process names as the responding party. You have options in how you would like to participate in the hearing, and the hearing officer or an advocate at the WGAC can help walk you through your options. So reporting to the university is different than reporting to law enforcement. When you're reporting to law enforcement, what they're looking at is the state statutes, so whether or not someone has violated the law. But when you're reporting to the university, we're not looking at the law, we're looking at the student code of conduct and the violations that occurred there. Students have the option of reporting both to law enforcement and the university. It's important to know that university reporting and law enforcement reporting have different burdens of proof. The outcome of one process is not dependent on the other. But keep in mind that these are the requirements at the time of this recording. The burden of proof can change depending on the federal Title IX regulations, so none of this is set in stone. And while this might sound like a simple process, there are times when it can feel like so much time goes by without anything happening. Sometimes it can also feel like you have to tell your story over and over. And just like reporting to law enforcement, the waiting can feel like the hardest part. But if your abuser is an employee at CSU, you would report to the Office of Equal Opportunity, or OEO. Again, links to these resources and offices will be included in the show notes. The process of reporting an incident, or incidences, of interpersonal violence by an employee is a bit different than the reporting process for a student. The university is unable to put interim measures in place during the investigation, and the outcome of this process is largely determined by the senior professionals of whichever department the abuser works in, as opposed to the hearing officer. So if you have specific questions about reporting abuse by an employee, I'd recommend connecting with an advocate to learn more about the process and to talk through your options. Okay, so another thing to know about the university reporting process is that any employee of CSU, aside from those employees deemed confidential, are required to report incidents of interpersonal violence to the university. What this means is that if you talk to your RA or a professor about what happened, they are legally required to report the information you shared with them to the Office of Support and Safety Assessment, even if your perpetrator is not a student or the abuse happened a while ago. So keep this in mind when you're considering who to talk to about what happened. Confidential resources are often the best way to go because you can talk through your options and receive support without a report being made to the university. At CSU, Confidential resources include advocates at the WGAC, counselors at the CSU Health Network Counseling Center, and anyone under the umbrella of the Health Network. RAs, teachers, advisors, mentors are not confidential. I wanted to address some common concerns that survivors often have when considering reporting. Sometimes the whole law enforcement versus university reporting thing is super confusing. And as we talked about before, reporting to the university and reporting to law enforcement are two different processes. So you can choose to report to one and not the other, or you can choose to report to both or none at all. What I'd like to expand on here is that if you report to law enforcement first, they will share information with the university if the abuser is a student. If you report to the university first and also want to report to law enforcement, It'll be good to let the university investigator know that you're planning to talk to the police because in some instances, the university and law enforcement may be required to share information. In addition, I've heard a lot of students express concern that they'll have to interact with their abuser during the reporting process. The important thing to know is that at no point during the investigation or the hearing will you have to talk to or be in the same room as your abuser. When the hearing takes place at the end of the investigation, you'll have different options in how you would like to participate. None of the options require you to be in the same room as the perpetrator, and you can even decide not to participate at all. It won't reflect poorly on you in any way or affect the outcome of the process. So some of the survivors that I've worked with are concerned about retaliation. They fear that if they report, their abuser will retaliate against them in some way or that their abuser's friends will harass them. 
The university prohibits retaliation against anyone who reports interpersonal violence or who participates in this process. So retaliatory action is actually regarded as a basis for a separate violation under the university's procedures and can lead to separate sanctions. So if you've reported to the university and are being retaliated against, you just need to let your investigator know what's going on and or call the police if you feel like you're in danger. I also realize that survivors often have concerns not just about the reporting process, but also about how reporting will impact other aspects of their lives. Survivors I've worked with talk about a fear of losing their friend group, especially if they have a lot of mutual friends with their abuser. This concern shows up when making the decision to report to both law enforcement or the university, and it's a valid concern. I've seen many survivors experience huge shifts in their friends groups after reporting, which can be quite painful. Other survivors I've worked with fear how the university reporting process will impact their academics. Again, this is a valid concern. The process isn't always an easy one and can certainly impact your ability to remain focused on classes or on internships. Survivors have said that anytime they receive a call or an email from their investigator, it throws them off course and they have a harder time compartmentalizing their trauma. This is further compounded by the fact that survivors of trauma who experience even the slightest bit of stress can witness their ability to manage daily tasks go right outside the window. This is why it's really good to make sure that you have a support system in place and that you're aware of resources that can help you if you see your grades start to decline. And sometimes survivors are hesitant to report because they don't want to ruin their abuser's life. This is an incredibly common concern, and it's important to remember the impact that the trauma has had on your own life. Holding somebody accountable for their actions through the reporting process may help them to understand the harm they've caused you. And just remember, if your abuser never chose to hurt you in the first place, they wouldn't be facing these consequences. Many of the concerns that Victoria covered in the Law Enforcement Reporting Podcast can also apply to working with the university, so I'd certainly recommend giving that show a listen if you haven't already. But there are two important parallels to this conversation here. First of all, reporting to the university, just like reporting to law enforcement, gets complicated if a survivor is currently still in a relationship with their abuser, or if they fear escalated violence after reporting. Relationships are complex, and sometimes the reports to the university or law enforcement are made without your permission. But as you heard Audrey say, you get to choose how or if you participate in the investigative process. At the WGAC, we also recognize that leaving a relationship is not always the right solution for the students we're working with. Keep in mind that we will support you, whatever you decide. And the second parallel is that survivors also often have concerns about reporting based on their unique identities, whether they're a person of color, disabled, queer, or trans, and how these identities will impact the investigation or whether or not they'll be believed and or respected during the process. I don't want to get too in the weeds here, but I did want to mention the identities piece because it certainly is a factor when deciding to report. I know we've talked extensively about identities in other episodes, so if discussions of identity are new to you, hopefully you'll have some framework around that by now. And making the decision to report is not always an easy one, and you can take your time making a decision. It can be helpful to talk through your options with resources or support systems. Often the questions I ask survivors contemplating this decision is, what would feel most empowering for you right now? Is it reporting what happened to you in all the ways that you can? Or is it focusing on other areas of your life? What do you feel like would help you in your healing process? Thinking about these questions can help. I know some survivors who have found that just the act of reporting makes them feel like they did all they could, regardless of the outcome of the university process. Other times, students feel like the whole process of reporting would be way too re-traumatizing for them to even consider. These are important considerations. And keep in mind that you don't have to report right away. It's okay to take time to think about reporting and decide what's best for you. Again, if you're at all confused about what this process entails for your unique situation, don't hesitate to reach out to an advocate at the WGAC. We'd be happy to talk through things with you and explain everything in more detail. So that's all for this episode of We Believe You, advocacy, resources, and healing around interpersonal trauma. Please remember that the WGAC is here to provide support for all CSU students, 24 hours a day, 365 days a year. To reach an advocate, you can call 970-492-4242. If you have feedback, thoughts, comments, questions, 
or want to be interviewed for the podcast, please email WGAC at colostate.edu. That's WGAC at C-O-L-O-S-T-A-T-E dot E-D-U. For more information about advocacy and the Women and Gender Advocacy Center, go to www.wgac.colostate.edu. You can also find the WGAC on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. A big thank you to Xavier Hadley for creating the music used in this podcast and to our partnership with KCSU here at Colorado State University. For more KCSU content, go to kcsufm.com. Thank you so much for listening. I'm Coda Babcock, and this is COVID-19 Updates for Thursday. Colorado State University reports six new cases among students since Tuesday afternoon's episode of the Rocky Mountain Review, and no new cases among staff. The university reports over 3,400 total cases of COVID-19 since May 2020. Non-vaccinated individuals are expected to be tested for COVID-19 twice a week, and masks are required inside of on-campus buildings. Vaccines or noted exemption are now required at CSU, and information on submitting these records is available at covid.colostate.edu. Larimer County reports a high-risk score for COVID-19, and the CDC reports a high level of community transmissions for the county. ICUs are nearly full in the county with 95% utilization, with 65 COVID-19 patients receiving treatment in area hospitals. The seven-day case rate in the county sits at over 220 per 100,000 residents, and 7.5% of COVID-19 tests administered in the county came back positive in the past week. Larimer County reports a total of over 30,000 cases and nearly 260 deaths since recording began. Statewide, over 3.2 million Coloradans are fully immunized for COVID-19, while the state reports over 35,000 hospitalizations. Over 604,000 cases have been reported in Colorado, along with over 7,000 deaths. National Public Radio reports over 37.7 million COVID-19 cases since reporting began, along with over 628,000 deaths. In the past two weeks, cases increased by 35% and deaths increased by over 99%. The Southern United States, Midwest, and West Coast are all witnessing unchecked community spread, while Colorado, Minnesota, Wisconsin, Michigan, and the Northeastern U.S. are experiencing what NPR calls escalating community spread. Information comes from Colorado State University, Larimer County, the Colorado Department of Public Health and Environment, and National Public Radio. One FDA-approved vaccine is now available to all residents of the U.S., while multiple non-FDA-approved vaccines are also available. Masks are required on CSU campus and encouraged throughout Larimer County for vaccinated people. Non-vaccinated individuals must wear a mask in all indoor public spaces. I'm Coda Babcock, and that's all for COVID-19 updates. You're listening to the Rocky Mountain Review. Today, we are joined by Austria Cohn of the Collegian to talk about her recent article on the COVID-19 town hall at CSU. So to start off, can you tell us a bit about the announcements leading up to the town hall? Yeah, definitely. Um, so on 8-11, uh, there was a, Joyce McConnell had sent out uh, that there's going to be new mask vaccine and screening mandate. Um, and then the day after that was the town hall announcement. All right. And then what were community members' main concerns and how were they addressed? Yeah, so you were able to submit questions through a website before or after the meeting. Um, and a lot of the questions were concerning masks and the exemptions for them and what the future of masks will be. Um, and ex you can still get exemptions from masks. There's a form that you can fill out and uh, they are keeping track of the public health data to figure out um, what the mask mandate will look like. All right, and then are there any new updates in COVID-19 policy on campus? Um, there hasn't been since the article was published, um, but we are at 100% capacity for classes, labs, and things like that. Um, 
And today is one of the days that you can get a free vaccine at the LSC from 10 to 4. All right. And then how can people find information on COVID-19 town halls for CSU in the future? Yeah, definitely. So um, President McConnell sends out emails talking about the public safety, and that's where you'll get information um, about the meetings. And there's always recordings um, on the covid.colostate.edu website. All right. And then what role did the concerns over the Delta variant play in Joyce McConnell and other leaders' responses? Yeah, so that was an important topic. Um, They mentioned the Delta variant a lot um, because vaccinated people are getting sick. All right. And then is there any additional information you'd like to add about your article? Um, I would just add that the board members were really excited to be back on campus. Um, They're excited to see the new freshmen and to get back to normal. All right. And then again, if you want to read that article, it is at the collegian.com website and it is under the name Austria Cohn. And thank you for joining us again, Austria. Yeah, thanks for having me. We'll be right back. And we're back on the Rocky Mountain Review. I'm Cutta Babcock, and this is Tech News for Thursday, August 26, 2021. Subscription-based content platform OnlyFans has rescinded their decision to ban ex- sexually explicit content. According to Brian Fung and Sarah Ashley O'Brien from CNN, the ban was originally because of banking and credit card companies' concerns over content, according to the CEO. But banking partners of OnlyFans have assured that the company, to the company that they will continue to support transactions. In a tweet, OnlyFans said, quote, We have secured assurances necessary to support our diverse creator community and have suspended the planned October 1st policy change. OnlyFans stands for inclusion, and we will continue to provide a home for all creators, end quote. Earlier this week, OnlyFans CEO Tim Stokely blamed banks for the decision to ban explicit content when he was interviewed by the Financial Times. CNN says that OnlyFans has allowed some sex workers to transition to in-person and out-of-in-person and full-service sex work and work on their own terms completely online. Airbnb announced that it will house 20,000 Afghan refugees as they adapt to life in the U.S. According to Ian Carlos Campbell from The Verge, the announcement of the company's temporary housing option for refugees came Tuesday, evolving their previous program which housed first responders and other frontline workers during the pandemic. Airbnb said in the announcement, quote, It has become abundantly clear that the displacement and resettlement of Afghan refugees here in the United States and elsewhere is a significant humanitarian crisis. And in the face of this need, our community is ready to once again step up, end quote. CEO Brian Chesky later tweeted requesting for willing Airbnb hosts to reach out if they were willing to host a refugee family. family. This comes after new issues with stability in Afghanistan as the U.S. pulls troops out. That's all for Tech News. I'm Coda Babcock, and you're listening to the Rocky Mountain Review on 90.5 KCSU Fort Collins. If you missed any part of the show today, be sure to check us out on Spotify at KCSU News or online at kcsufm.com news. Hello there, my name is Ivy Winfrey, and sometimes things need to get a little bit weird. So here's a few of the weirdest stories I've found from around the world. The city of Naples, Italy, has sued the property owners of a section of seawalls it has deemed unsafe, only to find out that the city itself owns the property. According to Sarah Girard at Wink News, over the last three years, hundreds of thousands of tax dollars were spent by the city of Naples to sue property owners along seawalls they said were in disrepair. Seawalls are constructions often found in coastal cities created to protect the cities from rising tides and waves. The issue in question is who owned the seawalls along Gulf Shore Boulevard North in Naples. Former city manager Bill Moss says the city had plenty of reasons to not believe the seawalls were theirs. Quote, The city did extensive background searches to determine property ownership and determined that, in fact, the city did not own the seawall. It did own Gulf Shore Boulevard North, but clearly the seawall was excluded when the city annexed the park shore many years ago. End quote. Moss said those legal reviews came about around the same time as a 2013 sidewalk report that showed city sidewalks were cracking and came to the conclusion a seawall failing might be why. But the city cannot use public funds to prepare infrastructure on private property 
which initially caused the issue. In 2018, Naples believed it could cost it millions of dollars to repair the seawalls, but significantly less to sue the property owners of said seawalls. So, in May 2018, the city of Naples sued four property owners. Outlot F. Parkshore, Venetian Bay Yacht Club, Condominium Association, Venetian Bay North Yacht Club, Condominium Association, and Village on the Bay. In the end, an arbitrator decided the seawalls belonged to the city, and the two sides settled in May 2021. This was all under a new mayor, city manager, and city attorney. In total, the city spent more than $341,000 in attorney's fees on this case. And now, according to the settlement, any costs to replace, repair, or rebuild those seawalls are Naples' responsibility. A new study has suggested that eating a hot dog can take roughly 36 minutes off your lifespan, based on the chances it'll lead to fatal nutritional disease. According to Will Gnass at ABC News, a new study by the University of Michigan evaluated more than 5,800 foods, ranking them by their nutritional disease burden to humans. The study found that ingesting a beef hot dog on a bun resulted in 36 minutes lost, quote, largely due to the detrimental effect of processed meat, end quote. The same study suggests that eating foods like salted peanuts, baked salmon, and rice with beans are equivalent to adding between 10 and 15 minutes back into your life due to the positive health effects associated with eating those foods. Interestingly, the study also found that peanut butter and jelly sandwiches were associated with an added 33 minutes of life. Several French beaches have been forced to close in the wake of several cow attacks. According to Sarah Santona at Newsweek, Certain beaches on the French island of Corsica were recently closed after multiple cow attacks left people injured. The island's 15,000 cows have grown accustomed to being the sole inhabitants of Corsica beaches, hills, and village roads during the coronavirus lockdowns. As a result, some of the cows have become aggressive towards locals and tourists. The Times of London reported a herd was seen chasing a group of people last week in Santa Lucia de Tallino, a village between Propirano and Porcho Vecho. <laughs> Earlier this month, a tourist in his 50s was attacked by a herd after a failed attempt to occupy a spot on the beach of Lotu. He was rushed to the hospital to receive treatment for the injuries sustained to his neck. Francois Acarvia the mayor of Lazi, told the local paper he and his colleagues were, quote, frustrated by the authorities' failure to control the problem, end quote. To reduce attacks, authorities closed several beaches near the Bay of Ajaccio. Cows were reportedly, quote, eating plantations, denting cars, and overturning rubbish bins, end quote, as well as wandering into roads and destroying fencing when they weren't pursuing people. That's it for my weird news. I'm Ivy Winfrey, and you're listening to the Rocky Mountain Review on 90.5 KCSU Fort Collins. And now, for the weather. I'm Coda Babcock, and this is the weather. Today, through this weekend, you can expect mostly sunny skies with low chances of rain. Today, we saw temperatures cool down to a high of 89 degrees with a low of 55, with some rain later this afternoon and evening. And Friday, will warm back up to a high of 93 with a low of 59. Saturday, will have a high of 90 and a low of 58 and Sunday's high will be 85, while the low will be 55. As the week starts back up, heat returns with a high of 93 and a low of 55 on Monday, and a high of 94 and a low of 61 Tuesday. And for Wednesday's weather report, you'll have to check back in on Tuesday at 4 p.m. for the Rocky Mountain Review, only on 90.5 KCSU Fort Collins. Information comes from the Weather Channel. And that's all for today. We just wanted to thank Damien Castile for our amazing theme music that's playing right now. We'd like to thank our guests today, as well as Thomas Taylor, Ben Kruger, Stephanie Keel, Hannah Copeland, Addison Lambert, Elliot Hutchinson, Lindsay Johnson, Sam Vanefe, Maddie Erskine, Samuel Bailey, Eliza Jodar, Ben Haney, Dixon Lawson, Peter Walk, Taylor Sandal, and the rest of the staff here at KCSU and Rocky Mountain Student Media. We couldn't do this without you. And I'd like to thank you, Coda. And I'd like to thank you, Ivy. And finally, we couldn't do this without you, dear listener. Thank you. And with that, we'll see you next time.